I am Jen Wilson, author and body, mind and soul coach. Welcome to the I Am podcast, where we explore who you are. Yes, back to see you. Yeah, thank you so much. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. Yeah, I'm doing good. I had um, a bit of a rough year last year. Um, my Crohn's had a major flare-up, um, but it's under control and I'm feeling much better now. So, Did you figure out what caused it? That time it was my grand passed away and it triggered a lot of emotional stress and a lot of stuff that I hadn't dealt with in the past that all came up um, that needs to be dealt with. It was interesting, I was listening to the podcast that we recorded the last time, just this morning, and the stuff that we were speaking about it, it was just basically everything that we had spoken about the last time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know it's that interplay of like emotions and self-care and all of it. It's so important. And yeah. I feel like it, it takes a moment to be thrown off kilter, but then it takes a while sometimes to get back. To be, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of realization that needs to happen and then working out where you are, why you're there, what you need to do to rebuild. It's those layers of the onion that just keep peeling and you're like, totally. oh my God. <laughs> I know, I know. And I, you know, sometimes I get grateful for health challenges because I feel like some people just are able to just plow straight through in life with no awareness. Yeah. And then they get to a certain age and they're like, oh, I'm unfulfilled or I'm this or I'm not. But I, you know, those of us who have like more sensitive systems, I feel like, our bodies act as this barometer always bringing yes. us back. Yeah. <laughs> like wrong path, come back. Wrong path, yes. come back. Yes. Yes. So how have you been since the last time I spoke to you? You know, really pretty good. Like pretty good. You know, similarly to you, I have to kind of watch when I, when things are too hectic or stressful or overwhelming or whatever. But um, overall, like overall really good, just really busy and productive and and good yeah good so I, when I was listening back to the podcast you said that you were working on a memoir type book and then that's yeah. that's the book that you messaged me about your book so no, is so it? no that book is that? actually yeah that's a different book and that book is actually being shopped around now um but this book it's fiction but it's there are a lot of elements of my story in it yeah and thank you so much for reading it like I love that you read it and you liked it and thank it's, you so much see if when I've spoken to an author or I've seen an author speak about their work I feel much more connected to like when I read the book I get it more because you've heard a little bit about that person's story or you've had a conversation with them and you just, you read and understand things from a totally different perspective. I, I've read lots of Irvin Welsh's books, the guy that wrote Trainspotting. Yeah. I had read quite a few of his books and I enjoyed them and then I saw him speak and I went back and I read one of his other books and I, it was just like a whole different experience and I've got a couple of friends that are writers and I wouldn't necessarily have picked their genre if I was fiction, picking a fiction book, like they write crime fiction, but because I know them and I read that, I'm like, oh, there's, you can feel part of the author in the book. Yeah. When it's, like if somebody's telling their story and it's a non-fiction book, then you get a lot of their personality through. When somebody's writing fiction, if you don't know the person, you don't make those connections, whereas when you know the person or you spoke right. to the person, you get those connections. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I love that observation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's good. It's good. It's good. Yeah, no, I really, I really love that book. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um Thank you so much. Yoga cocaine. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, wow, what a title. Two things. I know, right? It's like most it I mean you can talk about the layers of it on the podcast, <laughs> but it's like, you know, the book is hopefully addictive. Yoga is addictive. She's coming out of a cocaine addiction. So it's like all these, you know, layers in two words, which I love. But, yeah. 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 So was there any particular inspiration behind that book? Because you said that there was elements of your story in yeah, there. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I am um, many years in recovery from anorexia and bulimia. Yeah. But my experience of being anorexic and bulimic was people used to tell me all the time, like you are to food, like what an addict is to drugs. And when I first, and I can speak about this, you know, on the show, but 
when I first um, got into recovery, I got into recovery because I was dating this guy at the time who was like 10 months sober from drug and alcohol addiction. Yeah. And he confronted me one day and he's like, you are so sick with anorexia and bulimia and I can't be with you anymore if you don't get help. And I didn't like know, I mean, I'd been in and out of treatment, in and out of treatment. And he brought me to AA meetings with him and he was like, you need to come, you know, come with me to these meetings. And I would come and I would like sit there and I started hearing people's stories. And I thought, oh my, this is me, but they're talking about drugs. And like, I do that with food. And, um, and so that was part of the inspiration. And I'm not, you know, my story is not Jessica's story. There's different elements. Like she was in a, in a relationship that she then came to realize was abusive and, you know, sexual abuse, but she didn't see it as abusive at the time. Like I was never, I had childhood sexual abuse, but it was very different than her sexual abuse. And so like, there's a lot of things that are not the same about us, but a lot of things that really, my story is a propeller. Yeah. Yeah. It was so good. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, it was like, I got really invested in Jess as a character and I was like, oh, I don't want to fall asleep just now. (laughs) <laughs> I want to keep reading. Like I read, I think I read about half of the book in one in the first night. Wow. I was like, I'll just read a couple of chapters and see what it is. And it was like half a bit later, like, oh, I need to go to bed now. Oh, that's so great! Thank you so much. I'm sorry that you're sleep deprived, but also I'm really grateful that makes me feel really good as an author. So thank you. Yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah, and I think you really tackled a lot of the story around the childhood trauma and things like that. And that realized that the part of her journey where she didn't realize that what had happened with her stepdad was abuse and she kept taking that on herself. Like, I mean, you listen to people like Gabor Mate and people that talk about childhood trauma and abuse and addiction and things like that. All of those things people put onto themselves. And even if you've not been through something like sexual abuse from a step parent or anything like that stuff that's happened in your past because you're a child and you're very ego driven up to a certain age you do think everything is about you and everything Um, you take that on and unless there's somebody there to go it's not your fault you, you then carry that with you for a long time I think Oh, totally. And everything that she took on, like the death of her dad and her, you know, and the stuff with her stepdad. And and I remember being a kid and my aunt died of leukemia. And this is something we can talk about too, like on the recording. But I remember thinking, I thought I killed her. I mean, I had nothing to do with it, but I thought it was my fault. And if I just like prayed harder or loved her more or been different or been better, she would have lived. And I hated myself for like years because of that. Yeah. And it really took a long time for me to untangle that oh like mm. bad things happen and it's not my fault and I don't have yeah. to absorb that but um but yeah it's it's intense so hopefully people who can't relate to the specifics can relate to the emotions and hopefully people who can relate to the specifics can see that like you know they're not as none of us are as broken as we think we are like we're all you know we all have certain damages and certain traumas and certain things that we you know spend our lives working through and healing but at the same time like none of it is irreparable yeah yeah totally get that totally get that so what do you want to talk about i've just so so i've just hit record so i can chop off that first bit if you don't want any of that to go out and we can start it from here or we can just let it let it keep keep rolling whatever works for you oh um sure i mean whatever whatever works for you, like, I mean, this is your, you know, this is your jam, but um, because it's the Warrior Woman podcast, like, I was thinking we could maybe talk about this book specifically, but also, like, you know, some of the applications for just female empowerment, because I think, you know, really now, you know, in the wake of the Me Too movement, like, yeah. there's, so mu- there's so much that we as women, I think, can learn from these types of stories from people who turn against themselves because of various things that have happened and like how do we love ourselves enough to be honest and be truthful about our experiences while not feeling badly about them and like get the help that we need to move forward so I was kind of thinking you talk about something along those lines about work 
anything you like. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I am open for the conversation to be however you want it to be. Yeah, sure, sure. I mean, do, you want to, and... do you want to keep going with the with stuff around the book then, since we've already kind of kicked off there? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's, yeah, let's talk about the book and we can, I mean, I'm happy to answer questions about how it relates to my life and the work that I do with various people, you know, people, because I, I want it to be useful to your readers, uh, to your listeners as yeah, well, yeah. you know, and so, like, how do we apply some of the things from that? Yeah, 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 totally. So, as I said, the book is called You Look Again. Yeah, you wrote it. How long ago, when did you decide to come up with this as the storyline? Has this been something that's been brewing for a number of years? That's a great question. So actually, I wrote the book not too long after I got out of um, eating disorder treatment in 2000 and nine like the very end of 2009 and then I think maybe a couple years later I started this book and it was partially because of my own experiences and like wanting to work things out but also like I really believe in sort of reclaiming stories and that when we can do that that can be really healing and it and the things that we've come through as individuals can really help others so I started this book then and then I got a publisher and I published the book um but like the publisher didn't really do any market, like it kind of didn't go anywhere. And so I got the yeah. rights back. Um, and then I re-signed with a new publisher uh, last year. And, um, and so I did a whole like rewrite and revision and I really made it like a better, richer book. And it was so cool because, um, you know, often as an author or just as a person, like I'll do a project and then it's done. But to be able to go back and revisit this project that I'd worked on a long time ago and like see how much I'd grown as a person and as a writer. And also this might sound weird, but see how much Jessica, the main character has grown. Like she, she's different. Like I love her more actually after spending time with her again and and revisiting that relationship and rewriting the book so it came out in january of 2020 in january of this year um and it's just the reception has been really great like i feel like it's really whether people want to read it because they're avid fiction readers or they want to read it because they know someone in addiction or they want to better understand like trauma or whatever like i feel like there's multiple entry points in it and the reception has been really I'm surprised by how much people are loving it. It's yeah. Really it was possibly, it may have been a wee bit ahead of its time when it came out the first time because trauma and addiction and things are brought forward so much more because we've got so much better understanding of them. They're not taboo subjects the way they used to be. People are not looking down at people who've got addictions in the same way and they're more open to understanding trauma because there's a bigger conversation around it. And it's, it really is like, there's a complex set of factors, I think, often. And um, it seems like as a society, and I I hate to make gross generalizations, but it seems like we're a little more comfortable with nuance Mm -hmm. than we used to be. Like, I think being able to write a character who has done some, like, you know, she's done some things that have been really hurtful, but at the same time, it stemmed from her own hurt like I feel like the world is more ready to receive nuances and you know and a little confusion might be the wrong word but like you know you don't have to someone doesn't have to be perfect in order to be lovable and they don't have to be totally damaged or whatever like I I hope that I did a good job of writing characters who are complex where you can really see that like you know hurt people hurt people yeah I think there's definitely more compassion and understanding for that. Whereas even maybe five, ten years ago, people would have just thought she was a bad person. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's not been the case. And people, you know, I mean, one of the sad parts about the stigma around addiction is that people internalize that stigma. So people who are suffering and being self-abusive become even more and more ashamed of their actions or whatever, and then less likely to get help, maybe less likely to admit if they've had a relapse. And then Mm. instead of, yeah, I mean, I went through this where if I had a relapse, it was like, I couldn't tell anyone. 
And then I would just spiral further and further down the rabbit hole instead of being able to go and just say like, you know what, I, this is what I did and this is what happened. And like, can you help me move forward? And, um, so that for me was like one of the biggest things in healing, not just with addiction, but like with everything with life is being able to say like, Oh, like I made this, this was a mistake and I want to own it, but I'm not a mistake. Like I'm, you know, and, and really like inviting people to love me even when I felt unlovable. Yeah. So that's the character April in the book as her sponsor. And that just comes across like the patience that she has with her and the non-judgment that she practices with her all the time. In your healing and recovery journey, did you have somebody like that that you could base that character on? Or was that what you would hope any sponsor would be like? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So I think I'm lucky in that I have a number of people who in my life who are like loving and supportive. I mean, I work with a very gifted um, life coach, but I'm trying to think because I feel like I'm speaking about my life now and I have all these supportive people, but yeah, but I'm trying to like now that I'm thinking about it a little more deeply at the time when I was like at my lowest. I feel like I pushed people who loved me away, but I actually didn't, I actually didn't really reach out to them or enlist their support. Or sometimes I would have people who were very much in my corner. Like my mom's a very good example. Like she was very much in my corner, wanted me to be well, wanted me to be healthy. Um, But, uh, you know, I pushed her away a lot because I didn't want solution like I I was it was hard to go and tell someone things and have them be like well like what are you gonna do and how are you gonna get help and this and that and I was just like well I just want to share that I feel like I'm never gonna get better like you know what I like when I was in the depths of despair I just didn't really want those people around me loving me and being supportive so I don't I don't know. What about you? Do you have anyone in your life who's like you can go to with anything and they just love you and are super supportive? I've got, yeah, I've got a few people, but like you, when I'm feeling like things are not good, you go into that reclusive place. It's like I need to deal with it myself. And it's for me, part of it's control, part of it is being the victim is almost more comfortable than stepping through it to not be the victim yeah when you can because we talked about this the last time like you the stories that you run in your head they dictate how your life pans out so when you feel like shit sometimes you just want to keep feeling like shit and you know that if you go to somebody for help that's going to take you out of that whereas a need there's a need being met whether it's that need of wanting to feel sorry for yourself or wanting to feel a bit weak and frail for a while or yeah whatever that is um it's it's interesting and I think if you've got shame attached to that we are people who are struggling with addiction or something like that they don't want to feel judged because they're already judging themselves enough and they're maybe projecting that self-judgment on what other people are going to think about them as well Totally, totally. And I think that also, you know, it affects people who have depression or anxiety or, you know, I mean, I think many of us judge ourselves for a variety of different reasons and project that judgment outward. The other thing that dawned on me as you were speaking is like, I think that it can be really hard when I'll speak for myself, I was going to say when you but like when a person when I um, feel like I have nothing to give, like, that's why some of my like really very helpful, very healing relationships have been mentorships, whether I'm mentoring someone else or someone else is mentoring me or whether I'm like, you know, paying a therapist or or someone like there's something about being able to go to someone and just receive and not feel like you have to give and be reciprocal in that moment. And I was thinking about, well, why did I sometimes, and do I still sometimes not reach out to a friend when I'm going through something difficult? And it's often because I'm incapable of saying, oh, and what's going on with you? So it's like, I'll share my thing and I'm just in a place where I'm like, I just need help with my thing. Yeah. And I don't want to say, you know, how, and how are you doing? And I think. Because you um, don't have that head capacity to yeah, take on. Yes. Right, right. Yes. Or like I, you know, I, or, or I, it then becomes easy to like, put on that 
brave face, like, cause I'm, I'm often a problem solver and I often have it all together, but the few moments when yeah. I don't, like, I kind of don't want to pretend, I don't, I don't know. Like, I just want to be able to just go and just receive. And that's something that I really love about um, Jessica's relationship with her sponsor April is that like, there is no expectation of the reciprocity is just April just wants Jessica to be well and be healthy and be happy. And that's, yeah. And that's like beautiful to me, that kind of being able to love someone from a space of giving. Yeah, and I think I find it easy to be that person that's given. I'm not, I don't find it easy to be the person to receive. And I remember one of the days when I was really unwell and I could barely stand up. I was in so much pain and I was so weak and the dishwasher needed emptied and Chris went, sit down, I can do it. And I was roaring and crying because I wasn't able to empty the dishwasher. And I hate emptying the dishwasher and I will avoid it at all costs. But the fact that I could not even stand to do that and I was having to rely on somebody else to do it for me, that was just, that was awful. And I felt I can't, there's not, I have no energy to give you. All I'm able to do is take from you. And that then brought a layer of guilt on for me. And I think you made an important point earlier. You said you use the word control. And I think that, you know, when things feel like a choice, it's a totally different proposition than when we feel powerless. And I guess that, you know, ties back to the book and to some of the themes as well, like this idea of being powerless and this idea of not having choice. And I think, you know, if you're struggling with a physical illness or a mental health issue or you know any sort of thing where you're it feels like your body is not yours to control and to manage um that can be really devastating and and I think there's like a I think the guilt and the horror and the shame and the fear has to come before the freedom always because I think there is freedom on the other side of it sometimes but first there's that, that acknowledgement of like oh my god you know I am totally powerless over this I can't I can't make it better. Yeah. That's where the yeah. surrender comes in. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. I know. Which surrender. I hate you. I hate yeah. you surrender. Yeah. Oh. But I don't actually, because when you do soften into it, everything gets easier. It does. And, and it's, I, you know, it's interesting because like, I always think of, I, I'm a very all or nothing person. And I think like, even no matter how much work I've done on myself and this, that my first thoughts are always all or nothing. And I was thinking about how, you know, for me, when I can just remember that I don't have to surrender everything, just have to surrender the stuff that I'm not capable of dealing with. And so for me, like, I know that that means that I have to surrender my, you know, like wanting to be whatever size I want to be. Like, you know, I had an eating disorder for many, many years. I can't really trust myself sometimes mentally when it comes to how I assess my body. Sometimes I can really trust how I assess my body and whatever, but if I'm going through a time of stress or a time of pressure or, or I'm feeling out of control in some way, or I like, you know, like have my period, you know, there's just certain times when like, I can't, trust my assessment of myself or what I want to do with food. And so I know that, and I know that for, you know, I just turn it over, I surrender it, I let it go, but then I'm free to really like manage everything else that I can manage. Um, And it reminds me a lot of the serenity prayer, the God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change the change to uh, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And whether someone believes in God or not, like, I just think it's, useful to really practice that like that wisdom to know what what I have influence over and what I just need to let go of yeah yeah definitely and I think stress though that word stress when we're experiencing stress that's when we start to grip tighter and want to control more because all your reactions like the, the front part of your brain that allows you to process things and make rational decisions just completely shuts down because fight, flight, freeze is, oh my God, survival, survival, survival. Yeah. And then you do crazy things to try and survive, which can be completely oh. counterintuitive. 
Yeah, right. Well, and like, and I think it's really very, very, um, like, important what you said about that we do crazy things to because we're trying to survive. And it is, it's the brain just kind of gets like twisted in some small way. And so things that we're trying to do really to save ourselves can be very, very self-destructive. Like, you know, um, doing drugs is never, I mean, it's, it's not going to prolong a person's life, right? Or same yeah. thing with overeating or gambling or like compulsive sex or, you know, anything that could be very dangerous actually at the end of the day. But it really does, like, there's a way in which in our brain, the way that we process it, like it gives us a hit of serotonin, it gives us dopamine, it makes us feel alive, it makes us feel safe, it, it reduces the fears and the anxieties and the stresses. So a huge part of, I think, like any sort of when you're working with yourself is to be able to really acknowledge that the inner urges aren't real and that like, and to really practice that delay of gratification and practice just sort of resisting your basic instincts um, because they, they've gotten, you know, misaligned in some way and it takes a little while for them to get recalibrated. Yeah. Yeah. Did you use your, because you're a yoga teacher as well. Yes. Did you mm -hmm. use that as part of your recovery? So I did actually, and I'll tell you, there's a, I, I think this is really an interesting story because everyone assumes that I teach yoga because I love yoga and I've always loved it and this and that. Um, but Jen, actually, I came to my first yoga class. I was like really in the bottom of the bottom of my eating disorder. I was working at a job in finance that I hated. And I went to um, see a therapist and like really, you know, at, I was actually going to see the therapist because I wanted to keep doing exactly what I was doing. Like I still wanted to be as self-destructive as I was. And I still wanted to work in the finance job that I hated, but I just wanted her to make me feel better mentally and emotionally without changing anything. Like I didn't want to change anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, and after working with her for a number of months, she said, you know what, Dara, like you, your mind and your body are so disconnected why don't, can you at least just go to a yoga class? Like, just go to a yoga class. Like you, you're not willing to do anything, but will you at least just like go to this yoga class? And I said, okay. And I went to this yoga class and at the beginning of the yoga class, the teacher said, take a deep breath and feel your feelings. And I took a deep breath and I cried Jen for the next hour and a half. Like I just wept. And, um, I hated yoga actually when I first started it, but it, it, but for me, it was the beginning of really bringing me back into myself. And, um, part of the reason I hated yoga was because it was so uncomfortable for me to be with me and for me to like own what was going on inside. And, um, but that was, that was the beginning of me being willing to like, you know, it took many months, but being willing to check myself into very long-term eating disorder treatment, being willing to leave a job in finance to become a writer to like, build a life and this is um part of jessica's process in the book even though her building of a life looks very different than my building of a life but like to build a life that is soul enriching um and nourishing and you know and for me that really did begin with with that first ever yoga class that i hated and cried through <laughs> was yeah. that first teacher that you had did they become your teacher for a long time or did you have to go to a few different teachers before you found the right yes. teacher for you? I loved my first ever yoga class, uh, yoga teacher. Her name is Stephanie and she was just like this beautiful spirit lit up by the, like from the inside out. I so admired her, but I also had no idea like how someone could be that way, just be so alive and so yeah. like gentle and loving and nurturing. Um, but when I moved from, because I was living in Connecticut at the time, um, and so, you know, I, I went to her class for several months, and then when I moved, I, you know, had to sort of find new yoga teachers, but I've actually, and I, I want to kind of ask you a similar question, but, you know, I haven't actually ever loved a teacher as rapturously as I love Stephanie. Like, I feel like she really, <laughs> she changed my life. I feel like without her, I wouldn't be where I am, but I don't think I've had that with any other teachers. And I wonder if that's because of her 
or if that's because of what she represented and me really shifting out of that. And so I was kind of going to ask you if you had any big influences in your life and your journey of healing um, that you feel like, like really deeply inspired you um, and if you still are connected to them. I've probably had a few. One of them is my now yoga teacher. Mm -hmm. um, but I found him before I got sick. Um, but for, for me with yoga, I'd been to quite a few classes over the years and I'd always kind of gone, I don't really get it. But a lot of the time, that was because the classes I was going to were in gyms. Yeah. There was maybe 50 or 100 people in some of the classes and it was very based on the fitness element. And then when I met Mark, my teacher now, um, although it was still a physical practice asana class, he dropped little bits of the philosophy into it. And when I started, when he started talking, and, and there, it wasn't like, sit down, let's have a Dharma talk before we start. And then he just, it was like little drip feeds of things. And there was just something about it that I was like, this isn't just about fitness. Yeah. That it is, because for years, I mean, the first time I, I think I went to yoga class was when I lived in Australia. So that was back 2005, 2006 maybe. And I was just like, people say this is life changing. I don't get it. And it yeah. wasn't until I met Mark in 2012, 13, 14, what year is this? 2020. So yeah. maybe 2014 I met yeah. Mark. And then yeah. that's when I started. I was like, oh, right. Now I get how this can be life changing. And I right. started, and I went to his class regularly for a good couple of years. And then I dropped away from it. And then I got sick and then I was like, I need to go back to yoga because that's what I've lost. And it was after I had my, cold, my first, very first colonoscopy, they had sedated me. And when I started coming around, I, was, I said to my mum and dad, I was like, I need to go on my yoga journey. That's the path. Yeah. I, need, I need to go and do my teacher training and immerse myself in that because that's what's going to help me. And the two of them were like, right, okay. <laughs> and yeah. I, didn't, I didn't really know where that had come from other than very probably just the drip feeding of little bits of information that I saw something else and being stoned with the medication <laughs> brought it more to the front of my head where the ego wasn't getting in to go shut up. It's like, yeah. this is the truth coming through. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. And I love, like, I love that though, because, um, I feel like there is such a gift in yoga done in a way that really does bring people into themselves. But as you mentioned, it doesn't always do that because the medium does matter and the teacher yeah. does matter and the place and also where you are in yourself. Like I think yeah. for, you know, for me, just I'll still go to a yoga class nowadays and like there are times when I'm just there and all I'm doing are the movements and I'm just like you know in my head the whole time thinking about my to-do list and I, I get very little out of that and then there are times when I go and I'm like just very much in the moment and it feels like a spiritual experience so yeah. um yeah yeah I was at a, a Buddhist talk last Thursday and the monk um, was saying to us she's like you know, even a, a bad a bad meditation is still better than no meditation because you're always getting something from it. Check in with yourself how you feel, even if your head is still being going nine to the dozen all the way through. When you get to the end, you will still feel calmer than before. And yeah, that well, that's probably true. the same. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's true, and also though, it like keeps you in the practice. Like, I think a huge part of change just with anything or like a huge part of habit formation is just like can we you know can we keep doing the same thing I mean and that's one of the things with recovery it's like one day at a time you know every yeah. it's like, and if you get in the practice of accumulating days or moments or hours of whatever it is that you're trying to instill in your life like the more that we can really like practice that on an ongoing basis it doesn't always have to look pretty, but if just like <laughs> we're heading in the right direction one day at a time, life does get better. It just, yeah. it does. It's inevitable. And same thing, the reverse is also true. Like if we're making, you know, self-destructive choices um, one day at a time or one episode at a time, like it, it has an aggregate effect. It's usually yeah. not the first time that someone does something self-destructive that is 
the most devastating time, but it's that accumulated effect. Yeah, definitely. And it's just keep showing up for yourself. Yeah. And give yourself a bit of space to know that you're always doing your best. Yeah. And I think there's this moment, you know, we started talking earlier about um, how, you know, like when people are, when the self-esteem is low, how it can be hard to show up for yourself. And so I think there's like this moment of choice where we can choose to show up for ourselves, even if it's hard, even if we don't feel like we deserve it. And even if, you know, everything inside of you is saying like, no, I don't want to, or it's not going to be. And and just trust that like that repeated practice of showing up for yourself that at a certain point that self-esteem is going to really become richer and fuller and you'll start to see reflected in the mirror and in your life like your magnificence and start to really love yourself but it's like we have to kind of behave like we love ourselves before we do and that can be a challenge yeah 100% 100% what for somebody reading the book, what do you hope is their biggest takeaway from it? Yeah, that's a phenomenal question. So I think it really depends on who, like what they're bringing to the book, because I think that there are some people who might read the book and see themselves as Jessica, or they might have someone in their life who, you know, is in that spot that Jessica is in or, um, so I think, you know, some of the takeaways might be different depending on what someone brings to it, but I would hope that overall, like, I guess maybe empathy for themselves and others would just be like in a general way. I think that would be a good takeaway. Mm. Empathy and also the realization that change is possible. You know, it might be hard. It might be like time consuming. There might be a few steps forward and a few steps back, but like, it is possible to really change and to become the most magnificent, most manifested versions of ourselves. And, and I think to give ourselves that capacity to like love ourselves enough to be willing to change, but also to give other people that grace that like, you know, we can, we can forgive and we can let go and we can trust that if people really are making a sincere and dedicated effort to be different, we don't still have to like hold the past against them yeah 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 what was your biggest takeaway from the book possibly that there is support there for you if you're willing to be open to accepting it that as everybody has an April in their life and you don't know that they're there if you're not if you're closed off to accepting it yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love that that relationship is the one that most spoke to you. I mm. think, yeah, it's interesting kind of what people bring to it. Like I've had other people read it and say like, oh, you know, oh my gosh, I related so much to Jessica or like, I really, you know, I saw myself in, so I have a sister, my sister's name is Tyla. Um, and, um, and Jessica has a sister in the book and and so, you know, when I, when I gave that book to my sister, like, I feel like she sort of related to the Chloe character of kind of having this sister who's like this train wreck who's, you know, acting out in all this myriad of ways and like kind of feeling like, wait, but I'm doing all the right things and like nobody's really <laughs> paying attention or being a little embarrassed by me and stuff. Like, so it's just, it's really interesting, but I think there's a whole lot of different characters in the book and people can kind of see themselves or their relationships reflected back and that's something that I do love about fiction because with I do writing in the nonfiction space and with nonfiction sometimes it can be harder I think to connect to characters because they're real people so we don't see them as characters we see them as real people and it's like oh, I'm not going to compare myself to this celebrity or that human being or whatever but like it, in fiction there is that wiggle room to like interpret the characters and to really see ourselves in them and vice versa. Yeah. How was your relationship with your sister impacted while you were in recovery? Yeah. So 
It was definitely a journey and um, and I think maybe continues to be a journey. I would really want to have a conversation with her about it now, but I will say that for years, so she's 12 years younger than me. Um, and when she was first born and like, I was first, you know, just like, I was like a second mom to her. I mean, we were so, so, so close and so connected. And, um, you know, so I would say from 12 to 17, like she just like adored me and my name was the first name she ever said, her first word. Like we were just so connected and I was the only one who could get her to go to sleep other than our mom. Like we, we were so linked, Jen, and so yeah. connected. And, um, but then as I got sicker in my eating disorder and I got more just disconnected from people, I really feel like I took a step back from her life and a, and a step back from my family. You know, I moved out of my house at 17 and I was like living with my drug addicted boyfriend. Like, so I just wasn't present. I hope I wasn't destructive, but I certainly didn't add any value to her life. And like, it was like, she kind of never knew if I was going to be there or not. Um, I did because my addiction was food, you know, like I wasn't, if I did show up, it wasn't like I was going to be drunk or anything. So in that way, you know, I was like reliable when I was there, but I wasn't always there. Um, and I was in and out of treatment. And then, you know, as I got more into recovery, I started showing up more, but I think in the early days of our relationship, she felt like, well, okay, you're here, but for how long, you know, like, and how long are you going to be healthier? And it really, I mean, now it's been maybe 11 years or so since I've been really in a great place and, and our, and I've given like a lot to her and really helped her and supported her in a lot of ways. I think, I think that that trust is rebuilt. Um, but I will say that I think it's probably more fragile than if I just always been there and been accountable and responsible. Like I don't, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think if I were to relapse again, it would be, I think it would be very hard for her. And I think it would be very hard for like me to rebuild and reestablish that trust. So, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think all is, forgiven certainly but I don't know that it's forgotten um and I and I don't like I ask her about it but we're very different people like I like I talk about everything and I'm sort of like where my like I'm a very revealing person and my sister's a little more reserved and private than I am so we've had these conversations and she says everything is great and she says I'm a great sister and like she's very lucky to have me and I add a lot of value to her life but um you know, I, maybe this is a projection thing like we were talking about, but I still feel like I have to be on my best behavior with her always because I feel like I have a lot of making up to do. Yeah. There's possibly some underlying guilt there on your part that you need to forgive yourself for so that you don't feel like that fragility is there. Yeah. And I think it's also like a desire maybe to prove myself or something in some way. Like I've, I felt like for me, when I got into recovery, I really for a long time thought I was going to die from my eating disorder and almost did a number of times. And so I feel like I made a promise to myself that I was going to make my life really, really count when I got well. And I have, I mean, I, I do amazing things and I help a lot of people and, and all that. But I think there is like this inner urgency that stems from um, having what I consider to be a second chance at life that I feel like, oh, I have to like always, you know, bring my best. And sometimes my best is not that, you know, and, and having space for my best to really not be on all the time is something that I think I'm, I'm going to work on for the rest of my life, probably. Yeah, yeah. Every morning when you wake up, do you have to think about that journey that you're on or does life feel easier now because you know like yeah now it's really the reverse like in early recovery I woke up every day and I had to think about like you know just every day like oh my god just making it from breakfast to lunch and lunch to dinner you know I mean it was just excruciating and I remember like I couldn't I would like have to resist the, the urge to act out would overtake me and I'd have to like resist it. And I like it was such a job. It was such a labor. Um, and now, you know, it's like, I don't think about it 
at all, except let's say, you know, um, you mentioned having a colonoscopy, right? So like I had a colonoscopy in the past and like, like that process, I had to really think about it because it really brought up a lot of like emotion, you know, or um, if, if someone passes away or if there's some sort of trauma, like I just have to really remind myself to be vigilant around those times because I don't, I don't even really feel like a person with an eating disorder most of the time. But also I'm aware that with the right provocation, like those patterns are wired into my brain and, um, you know, like I just need to be mindful. Like I can't just skip a meal, um, just because I feel like it, you know? Yeah. There's a lot more self-awareness. Right. And once you have self-awareness, you can't forget about it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. And I know in the last interview that we did, we were talking about, um, the issue of like the stories and the stories that we tell ourselves. And, um, and I think that most of us have stories that we've told ourselves for a long time that don't work for us, that don't serve us. And you mentioned earlier, kind of like that victim, like, Oh, I want to be a victim or something, you know, in that moment. And I think that it's almost like, I feel like the mind becomes a library in a way and there are all these different books and we can add all these beautiful and amazing stories and and we can choose to withdraw from our library like the beautiful and incredible stories and the stories of triumph and the stories of transformation but like somewhere in the dusty corner of those those mental libraries are some of the very destructive like you know harmful stories And and the more we can add beautiful stories to that library the less likely it is that we're going to choose to withdraw the ones that don't serve us or that are dark or whatever. Um, But just knowing that like, okay, that's there too. And I'm, you know, maybe going to not walk down that mental aisle and not, you know, withdraw that, that story today is, um, is something that I think has become so much easier for me, but, um, but it took time. It took a lot of time. Yeah. I like that analogy, the, the library analogy. Everything yeah, because those thoughts, those behaviors, those things, once they are there, once you do it once, there is a, a page in that book there that will never disappear. You just have to layer on everything else to make everything else stronger so that it's buried deep and doesn't resurface. Totally, totally. And I, and also, I mean, like the, that was the first time I've ever used the library analogy. So I'm just like, beautiful. Thinking you can it use it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But like, I also think it's really cool to acknowledge that there are so many different ways to tell a story. And I love when you said the page in the book, because, um, you know, when I used to tell my story of being a person who had an eating disorder, like I would tell it in a way that was just like, I was eviscerated, you know, and I would talk to you about it in a way that was like, woe is me. And this is a horrible thing, you know, and now I see it as like, oh my God, thank God I had an eating disorder. I'm so grateful. Cause if not for that, I would never have ended up in Philadelphia. Like I would still probably be in a job in finance, but I hate, <laughs> I wouldn't be a writer. Like I wouldn't have this internal barometer that tells me whether I'm taking good care of myself. Cause like, I know, you know, if I wake up one day and I'm feeling fat, like it's not, you know, it's the only thing that's shifted is, is what happened the day before. So I can look back and say like, okay, what did I, what did I do or what didn't I do to contribute to this feeling, you know? Um, and so just all that to say that like, even within this library metaphor, there are those pages in the book that are written the way that we wrote them originally, but also we can look at that same story and we can write a narrative that turns our victim story into a victor story and that is beautiful and like being able to hold that and really reframe our inner world like is i think like that's the essence of the hero's journey which is also the recovery journey which is also the transformation journey it's like how do we move from being people who have gone through whatever hardships we've gone through whatever traumas to being people who can like proudly own our magnificence and 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 then use our gifts to help others like that's that's I think the essence of what it is to be a human being yeah so if somebody was listening to this and they were stuck in that space of victim for want of a better word 
what would you suggest to them to do as a first step to help them move away from that story? Yeah, well, so I think the first step is to really own and admit where we are, you know, no matter where it is, like you can't change it if you can't acknowledge it and you can't recognize it. So I think from a space of non-blaming, just to say, this is the story I'm telling myself, or this is how I feel, you know, this is, this is what's going on inside of me. I personally find, Jen, that writing it down can be helpful, yeah. um, but you know, some people don't like to write. And so I, I will tell people, you know, when I'm coaching people or working with them, I will tell them, you have to get it out of your head in some way, because if it's in our head, we can't, like, we can't look at it. We can't put boundaries around it. So, you know, some people might draw whatever their victim story is. Like they might do a visual representation of it. Some people will tell, you know, a friend or a therapist or I've worked with clients who will just record it on their phone, like a voice recorder and then play it back for themselves or they can write it or like, you know, I don't care what, how you get it out of yourself, but like put it in a form where you can really see it or hear it and just like have a framework around it. So I think that's the first step. Um, And then I think the second step after that is just to ask yourself, you know, like, how is it making you feel? How is it making me feel to be telling myself this story? You know, like how, like, what is it, what is it costing me to tell myself this story and to be in this, in this story, in this version of events? And, um, and I think when we can really get clear about that, like, oh, it's costing me relationship. It's costing me the, you know, the chance to follow my dreams. It's costing me hours of worry and anxiety, like whatever that cost is. I think there's something within us that always knows, like, what is the price that we're paying to be in the story? Um, And then, you know, after that, I think a question that I often ask myself and other people that I work with is like, you know, if you could, if you could look at this same set of events, through a more empowered lens. So like if you could have a different set of belief systems that would allow you to look at the same set of events in a different way, like what, what's one possible belief that you can thread these events through? So for example, um, you know, let's say that someone um, uh, doesn't get a job, you know, like they, they apply for a job and they don't, and they don't get that job. And then they're like, Oh, I'm never going to get a job. Like, you know, I'm a piece of garbage. I'm not, you know, I, like, I, I messed up on that interview, you know, whatever, like, I'm not ever going to get a job. And I might say to, to them, because I've actually had, I've worked with a client who's <laughs> going through this, this exact situation. And I said, you know, well, so, okay, you didn't get this job. Yes, it was upsetting. It was disappointing. And, you know, when you're continuing to beat yourself up about it, like, what does that cost you? And he said, well, you know, now I'm not applying to any other jobs because I'm just like, so, you know, and I'm now I'm just stuck in the job that I have that I've hated for forever. Um, and I'm not really making money, you know, and I'm just like so devastated and I don't feel like I can get out of this. And they said, well, okay, what's a possible way that you could look at you not getting the job? Like what could possibly be good about that? What could possibly be empowering about that? And when we talked, um, you know, in this particular example, the client said, you know, well, actually there are a few things about this new position that wouldn't really have suited me. You know, like I really wouldn't have liked the work hours and I really wouldn't have liked that it's far away from my house. And I really wouldn't have enjoyed, um, you know, that I, I don't get to work with people as much. And like really at the end of the day, it was just that it was a higher salary and like a better job title. And I said, well, okay. So if you were to acknowledge that, really, you know, this job wasn't the ideal fit for you, what opens up? And suddenly we were talking about like, well, oh, like actually maybe I could go for a job that has me interacting with people a little bit more, or maybe I could look for something a little closer to home. And fast forward a month later, he got a job offer for a job that like he really is super enthused about and he started working there and he's loving it and he's happy. And, you know, and if I ask him today, you know, well, like, you know, 
are you like, are you still upset about not getting that job that you applied for, you know, like a month and a half ago and you did and, and he would say like, Oh my God, no, that was the best thing. I'm so glad I didn't get that job. Cause if I didn't get that job, then this, 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 and this. Yeah. So like, you know, I mean, that's, that's one example, but there's so many examples in our lives where if we can just, sometimes we're just taking the in the moment view and we don't really have that bird's eye view. So like if people can just own and acknowledge where they are, the story that they're telling themselves, look at like, well, what's a possible shift? And sometimes they can't make a complete shift, but even just a slight shift, you know, even just like a minute directional change will take them from maybe feeling like a victim to just feeling like neutral, you know? And that's, that's a world of difference, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, and the other thing I want to acknowledge is that um, if someone is in an actual situation where they are being victimized by someone else or where they're victimizing themselves in some way, like if it is an addiction issue or if it is, you know, um, like, you know, a domestic relationship that's abusive or, you know, something else that I think, you know, before a person can even begin to rewrite their script, they need to get like very tangible help and support to get out of that situation. Because yeah. like sometimes there's a voice within us that's screaming that this is not okay because the situation isn't okay. And we actually need to make ourselves safe before we can start to change that. So I would encourage anyone who you know, if they are in an addiction, like where it is very bad and they feel like they need to go into treatment or they need to get some sort of like, you know, go to the 12 steps or like do something, you know, get some tangible help from something outside of yourself. Or if you're in a, in an abusive relationship, like talk to a counselor, talk to a law enforcement officer about how to get out of that situation. Because, um, yeah, like I don't want anyone to have the skills and the tools and the resources to make a situation that's not okay, mentally okay for them, because it's, it, you know, it, yeah. I think there, there are some very real situations that people need to get out of. Yeah. And I think that also crosses over to your health. Like if you're really sick, you need to get some medicine to put yourself into a safer space so that you can then start working on things. Yeah. You can change yeah. your diet, you can change your sleeping habits and stuff, but if your body's got to a place where it's really sick, that's not going to be enough. You need a little bit of extra support. And that's the same with mental health crisis or addiction crisis or any kind of crisis. Totally. And acknowledging too that, I mean, as human beings, we're very complex. Like we have minds that lie to us. And one of the things that I've instituted in my life is, um, you know, I mean, I'm really, I make a lot of decisions, but if there's a decision that I'm sort of like, I'm not sure what place this is coming from. I will tell people about the decision that I'm looking to make. So for example, you know, I have um, celiac disease and I have the history of eating disorders and, and whatnot. But um, so with those two things, like when I have to make changes to my diet, I, I, I will go and consult a nutritionist and say, you know, hey, I'm thinking that dairy doesn't actually work for me. And so I want to cut it out of my diet. And I did this and I've cut dairy out of my diet. But before I did, I went and I talked to a nutritionist and I said, given my history of eating disorders, I want to make sure that I'm making this choice from a place of health and not a place of like thinking it's some like backdoor way that, okay, if I don't eat this food, like I'll be yeah. like, I didn't want to trigger an anorexia thing. But at the same time, I was noticing that when I was eating dairy, like my stomach was being a little more upset. And so just really like having people that, that we can lean on for support um, and to check out, like, is this, where is this thought coming from? And is this a supportive story or is this a destructive story? And sometimes I don't know that we can always see it for ourselves. Mm, yeah, we definitely need that person from outside looking in to look at yeah. it more objectively, just totally. even for your own reassurance of I'm not going crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit yeah. of validation, totally. a little, little bit of validation. Like I, what I'm saying does make sense. I'm not just making this up. Do you, are you in agreement with me? So that it is just that little bit of reassurance, especially if you've had a previous destructive behavior. 
Yeah, I mean, I think one of the healthiest things that people can do is find, you mentioned support, but like find really quality gifted support people because not all support people are created equal. So like, you know, maybe just having a short list of like, okay, this is my life coach who I love and trust or, and this is my doctor who I, you know, really trust with this issue or my, my spouse who I really trust with that or whatever, you know, and people that you can really you know, I think there is so much to be said for our inner intuition. I mean, you woke up from, you know, from this drug-induced haze of the post-colonoscopy and that voice within you said, yeah, yoga teacher training is for me, you know, and so I think we need to honor those intuitions and sometimes everyone in your life will tell you that you're crazy and, and like still you're, you're, you need to kind of do what, what is going to work for you. But but at least having people in our lives that we can trust to go to, to just like ask for support and advice and, and know that they're really in our corner and they want what's best for us and, and, and telling them like what our ultimate visions are so that they can support us even in the moments when we kind of forget what our values are or what's yeah. important to remind us. Um, but yeah, it, it is a dance. It's a dance between like, you know, having that true knowing within yourself and then also trusting the people around you to know, to know you as well and to contribute to that conversation. Yeah, definitely. It's like building your own team or your own community because years and years ago, you would have the area that you lived in, you would have your, your tribe or your community or your team there. But because we're now away from family, living in different countries or whatever, you then need to maybe cherry pick and select who that who that type of community is for you that you've always got the right people around you. Right, yeah. And I think it's, you know, I think that um, it's true whether a person's introverted or extroverted, like I don't think it always has to look the same, but I do think we have a hunger for love and support and nurturing. And I've noticed that what, you know, people who are extroverted can be very lonely too because they feel surrounded by people sometimes but not known really in a deep way and people yeah. who are introverted sometimes feel like alone and not known and it's you know I think if we focus on the quality of our relationships not necessarily the quantity of our relationships yeah. uh, that can be just so enriching yeah definitely most definitely is there any other points from the book that you want to chat about Oh, um, yeah, so I guess something that's been interesting and surprising and that maybe didn't come out in this conversation so far, but um, the feedback I've gotten from the book is that it's also very funny, like that, the, that it's sort of like this mix of like deep and humorous. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I really appreciate that. And I feel like that's kind of who I try to be in my life is like a mix of funny and, and deep and real and profound. And, um, and so yeah, I just think that, you know, as we're moving through life and whatever our challenges are, like being able to infuse some humor into that is really pretty critical and like to enjoy ourselves along the way, even as we're making mistakes and even as we're sort of moving forward and backwards, because it, it really can bring us further forward to like have fun along the way. Yeah, and I think life's serious enough as it is, we need to shoot more fun into it. Yeah. And there's so much that we could learn from children. Like children, they, they cry, you know, they like weep and then they're happy and they're skipping and they're like, they just, they don't get so attached to each individual feeling that it takes over their identity. And I think that as adults, you know, like if we could just practice that, it would be so much easier to be self caring and self nurturing. Cause like, if it's okay to be devastated and to cry for an hour or then I don't have to eat ice cream, you know? Yeah. If I give myself permission to just like laugh from my belly, then maybe I don't need to like numb out with TB or whatever else. Like, you know, because we as people, I think we want to experience highs and lows. And if we can let ourselves do that naturally without trying to augment it or force it through artificial means, like life really does get better and richer. And then some, I don't need this thing to feel high. Like I can feel high because life itself brings me joy and it's okay to be joyful and it's okay to laugh and it's okay to like have yeah. that 
intensity. What, at what point in life do you think that we, that we forget to be children and we start clinging so on to these emotions? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you said it as forgetting to be children. I think it's a, I think for different people, it happens in a multitude of different ways. Like I think sometimes we kind of are influenced by our peers or by society. I think some people have, you know, traumas in their childhood that force them to grow up far too quickly. Um, um, I think, you know, earlier in like our conversation, we were talking about this notion of like kids sort of taking things, absorbing responsibility for things that aren't theirs to be responsible for. And I think some of that can lead into it. Like, I don't, I think it's different for everybody, but I do know that the more we can reconnect with the elements of ourselves that are young and innocent and playful and joyous and joyful, like that's where life is like that's where life becomes most enriching so I don't know when we forget it but I know if we can remember like yeah. <laughs> not to forget it then it's a gift yeah yeah definitely definitely um so we were just passing the hour mark which yeah. I can't believe the, the last time I looked at the clock it was only like 15 minutes in and now we're Wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank <laughs> you like, so much. Yes, yes. <laughs> Is there any, any other points that you were hoping to get across that um, I haven't I asked mean, you about? Or? No, not at all. I mean, I think I could just tell people like where to get a copy of the book and how to connect with me if they want to. And, Go uh, for it. I'll put links in the show notes as well. But yeah, if you see it. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so I'm always um, excited to connect with with people I would love to hear from your listeners and they can contact me on my website is daraleeslyons.com and I'll spell that. It's D-A-R-A-L-Y-S like Sam, E like Edward, L-Y-O-N-S.com. So that's daraleeslyons.com. Yeah. Um, and there's links to, you know, like everything that I'm up to and a link to the links to the book can be found on my author page. And it's also available on Amazon. And the book name again is Yoga Cocaine. Yeah. And it's excellent. I can highly recommend it. (laughs) It's fabulous. (laughs) Fabulous, fabulous, fabulous. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and reaching out again. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was so, it was so great. And the time just and I'm really grateful yeah thanks for listening and remember to leave a review and subscribe over on iTunes or SoundCloud and check out what's going on at iamjenwilson.com or head over to Instagram and give us a follow just following iam.jenwilson